Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, good evening, everyone. We meet again on Zoom because we are still in a lockdown. If you're listening to this on a podcast one day in the future, you might vaguely remember, but in 2021, we had a whole series of lockdowns in Melbourne and we're in number six, and who knows when it will finish. Anyway, all we can do is keep the rules and oven and hope that we get through this. Now, we are up to middle or towards the end of Pasuk Yud Aleph in Perak Kafchet. And the story so far is, Yaakov alighted on a place. We talked all about the possible meaning of Paga. Um, something to do with meeting a place for Yalin Shaman. He slept there, Kiva Hashemesh, because the sun had set. And Rashi explains that means the sun set prematurely. He took from the stones of the place. We talked about that and Rashi's famous comment that the stones merged into one. And he put them around his head. And then comes the phrase that we're now going to see Rashi's comment on. And he slept or he lay down in that place place. So Rashi says on the words, Loshan miut. it's an expression of accepting. In other words, it was only in this place and not in other places. But otomakom shachav, in that place he slept, aval, we'll just pause there, but it, we'll pause for a moment. So one can look at it sort of very simple way. He slept in that place. Now, why does the Torah need to tell us he slept in that place? First of all, why does the Torah need to tell us really he slept at all? Um, we could have worked that out from the fact that he has a dream, but maybe that's part of the narrative. I, I can accept that. But to say he slept in that place makes no sense if we uh, have any, we, there's no reason why we would wonder in what place did he sleep? Obviously he slept at the place where he was. So Bamakom Hahu must be coming to teach us something. And then Rashi says, in typical um, uh, Talmudic style, if it says in that place, it means in that place and not in another place. That is why the Torah often says it happened this way, meaning not that way. At this time, not at another time. In this place, not in another place. That's what Lushan Miut means. So what is the place it's not that it's being excluded. But Otomakom Shachav, in that place he lay down or slept. Aval Yud Dalad Shanim Shishimesh Babait Aver Lo Shachav Balaila Shahaya Oseik Batora. But in the 14 years that he served in the house of Aver, in other words, in Yeshiva, where we've already learned from a few weeks ago that he must have spent 14 years between leaving Beersheva and getting to Haram. He did not sleep at night because he was occupied in Torah. So that's what means he slept in that place, but not in another place, not in the 14 years. Now, a couple of things to say. First of all, um, it's tempting to read that as if Rashi is saying that he didn't sleep for 14 years while learning yeshiva. Now, the problem with that is it's impossible. In fact, as a Gemara says, if anyone takes a vow that they're not going to sleep for more than three days, that is a false vow because it can never be fulfilled. 
So it is absurd to say that somebody didn't sleep for 14 years. But fortunately, that's not what Rashi says. It says he didn't sleep at night during those 14 years. Shahaya Oseg Batora, perhaps echoing the Rambam, Perak Gimel Halacha Yud Gimel of Hilchat Torah, Ein Adam Lomed Rov Chachma Elav Alayla. A person does not learn the majority of their wisdom except by night. And there's a few other sources in the Gemara that say night is better than day for learning Torah. So I don't know if we're being told here that he was fully nocturnal. He slept all day and studied all night, or he slept a little bit in the day and studied all night. I don't know, probably the latter rather than the former, I think to fit in with our image of Yaakov being uh, Ishtam Yosheva Holim, um, the perfect man dwelling in tents and learning Torah as much as he could. But whatever, he did not sleep, sorry, he did not lie down to sleep for at night during those 14 years. Interestingly, Rashi is quoting one side of a uh, dispute in the Midrash. Um, one view is that is to exclude the 14 years that he spent in yeshiva. And another is to exclude the 20 years that he spent in Lavan's house. After all, in Perak Lamad Aleph Pasuk Mem, when he finally has his final confrontation with Lavan, and he says, Lavan, I've done all these things for you, but tidar shenati me'enai, and I vowed sleep away from my eyes, which sounds like he didn't sleep, uh, at least by night. So it could be, and that, that's the basis for the opinion in the Mishnah, sorry, in the Midrash, that says the exclusion here is to exclude the 20 years in the house of Lavan. So he slept up till now, and he slept in that place when he had the dream, but he didn't sleep for the 20 years in Lavan's house. Rashi doesn't go down that path. Rashi goes down the alternative suggestion in the Midrash that he didn't sleep for the 14 years, perhaps because we know that during the time in Lovin's house, he did go to sleep at night or he did lay down at night. We know on one particular occasion, uh, Leah went out to meet him and said, um, without going into too many details, I've got you for the night. <clears throat> and the result of that night was Yisoscha. Um, and obviously he was producing children um, and we can assume that in the normal course of events, so he was laying down at night. Um, and maybe that is why Rashi thinks the Peshat is more likely to be, but he didn't sleep during the previous 14 years, rather than the opinion that he didn't speak, sleep during the other, uh, the next 20 years. Um, the next thing to say is if he was so good at not sleeping, why of all places, if he's now in Haha Maria, why does he choose to go to sleep on this occasion? So it could be that he understands that if he's in Haha Maria, he's going to be liable to get some sort of Ruach HaKodesh, some sort of prophecy, which is really a continuation of his learning Torah. The only difference is it must come when he's asleep, because every Navi, with the exception of Moshe Rabbeinu, only received Navua in a dream when they were asleep. So it could be that Yaakov sees this going to sleep ironically, as a continuation of not going to sleep during the 14 years in yeshiva, because only by going to sleep now will he get a revelation which will increase his Torah wisdom. Or, and this is probably the simplest thing to say, he arrives in this place, suddenly the sun sets, he's aware of this, we talked about this last week, he thinks, what is Hashem telling me to do by making the sun set prematurely? Ah, it must be he's telling me to go to bed. The, the, uh, the world has got dark, there's not much to do in the dark except to go to bed. Hashem is telling me to go to bed, and that's why he does it. So let's move on. 
and he goes to bed and in Pasuk Yud Bet, and he dreamt. One of the most famous passages in the Chumash, maybe in the Tanakh, possibly because it lends itself so beautifully to drawing, a drawing of the dream that he had. And what was the dream? And behold, a ladder. Interestingly, just by the way, the only reason we know that Sulam means ladder is because we think it does. There's no other reference to a Sulam in Tanakh, I believe. So uh, there's a fancy Greek term for a word that only occurs once in Chumash. And I forget what that term is. Sorry. Um, Lexi, something. Um, and this is one. So uh, we all know Sulam means a ladder, but, but we don't know why we know Sulam means a ladder. Anyway, interesting fun fact. We'll translate it as ladder. Uh, and the ladder was Mutzav Arza, was standing on the ground, and its head reached the heavens. And behold, angels of God were going up and going down on it. So we'll talk later. I doubt we'll get there this week, but maybe next week we'll talk about exactly where this ladder was. Where was it Mutzav Arza? Where was it in the ground and where did its head reach? That's going to be a fascinating and lengthy discussion in Rashi. But right now we're learning about the angels who are Olim Yoradim Bo. They were going up and down on it. And Rashi says, just let's read the question of Rashi, then we'll discuss it before we get to the answer. Olim Yoradim, Olim Techila Achakach Yoradim, going up first and coming afterwards coming down. This is surprising for Rashi. This is Rashi's question. Why should they be going up first and coming down second? The basis for Rashi's question is if we assume that the angels, their starting point is heaven, that's where you find heavenly hosts like angels, they would have come down the ladder first from heaven to earth, then do whatever they do on earth, and then go back up the ladder. So Rashi is bothered by the fact they are olim techila v'achakach yoradim. Um, I, we don't normally quote other Mephorashim, but it's just uh, in, illustrative to quote the Rashbam at this point. The Rashbam is Rashi's grandson, and the Rashbam, like the Ibn Ezra, but not exactly like the Ibn Ezra, is very literal, and he avoids Midrashim. But he often says, and the Ibn Ezra often says this as well, chill out, and my, my paraphrasing, when Rashi notices some problem, the Rashbam will say, what's the problem? And in this case, he says, Ein ladakdek, shakain you don't need to be precise because it's the normal way to mention ascent before descent. And uh, I was thinking about this, and he's obviously right. Um, you uh, in English, let's say, and, and the same applies in Hebrew, but in English, you might say share prices go up and down. You don't say share prices go down and up. You just don't say it. Um, if you're going for hills and valleys, you'll say you go up and down. It's just not natural to say you go down and up. So the Ibn Ezra, sorry, the Rashbam is saying it's not uh, anything special to say up and down. That's just the way you normally speak. And that, I think, is, is a very clear example and a good example of the Rashbam style that he and the Ibn Ezra on, on this date, they follow a similar pattern, will say, this is the Loshem Ben Adam. This is the way people speak. Don't be so bothered. Don't be, as the Rashbam says in this, this example, aim the duct take. You don't have to be precise. And he's obviously referring to his grandfather's analysis because his grandfather, Rashi, is meduct take, is precise. And when he says, Olim 
he wants to know why. So Rashi's answer to this question is as follows. Malachim she'livuhu be'eretz, the angels that accompanied him, Yaakov, in the land, the land of Israel, ein yotzi'im chutzel ha'aretz, they don't go outside of the land. Ba'olu l'rakia, and they went up to heaven. Ve'yoradu malachei chutzel ha'aretz l'lavoto, and the angels that were going to accompany him outside of Israel now descended the ladder in order to accompany him. So what we see is a changing of the guard. The angels who were with him down on earth, they went up because they were not going to accompany him outside of Eretz Israel. So they went up first. And then after that, the next troop came down because they're taking over they're going to accompany him in Chutzlaretz. Now, you might ask, wouldn't it have been better to swap round, to have the newcomers come down first and the old guard to go up second? And that would have been, Yor, uh, uh, that would have been uh, Yorodim v'achakach olim. Yeah, which is the other way around. Um, um, and that would have been down and up, and maybe even the Rashbam would have had a problem with that. But the, why, the reason you might think that would be better, because that wouldn't leave Yaakov unprotected. This arrangement does leave Yaakov unprotected for a minute. As the, the troop uh, that accompany him go up, he's on his own. Then the troop that are going to accompany him from now on come down, and then he's, then he's accompanied again. So just bear that in mind, because we will refer to that a little bit later. I haven't got an answer for that right now. Now, there is an obvious question here, um, which the Maharal answers uh, uh, beautifully. Um, and the obvious question is, why is this changing of the guard, which is related to whose job it is to accompany him in Eretz Israel and whose job is to accompany him outside Eretz Israel? Why does that exchange take place where he is now? Where is he now? He's in Yerushalayim, he's in Hahamaria. Now, in a minute, well, probably next week, Rashi's going to say, maybe not, but he's certainly nowhere near the border of Eretz Israel. If he's going to Aram Naharayim, to Padan Aram, which is somewhere in modern Syria, he's going to go north. He's going to go out through the Golan Heights. That will be the border where he leaves Israel. So why is the changing of the guard happening here? And we can sort of um, double the question because there is a reverse process. At the very end of Parashat Bayetze, we read, Yaakov is coming back to Eretz Israel. He's just finally finished with Lavan. He's finally got out of Lavan's clutches and he meets angels of God. And says Rashi there, Malachim shal Eretz Israel Angels of Eretz Israel came to greet him, to accompany him to the land. And the same question can be asked in precisely the, the mirror image. At that point, when Yaakov met these angels, he was not on the border of Eretz Israel. He was on his way to Eretz Israel, but he was not on the border. So says the Maharal, uh, and I think this is a, an idea which is pertinent for us all, perhaps even now of our generation, for reasons I'll explain in just a moment, that when somebody is on their way to Eretz Israel, they already merit the Eretz Israel angels. And that explains at the end of the parsha, when he's leaving Laban, he's left Laban 
he's on his way back to Eretz Israel. Because he's on his way, the Israeli, as it were, angels come to escort him. On the other hand, when he's leaving Eretz Israel, he's on his way out of Eretz Israel. So then, as soon as he's on his way out, the angels of Chutzla'aretz that belong outside the land, they come to escort him. So the message is, if you are on your way to Eretz Israel, in a certain sense, you're already there. And conversely, if you're on your way out of Eretz Israel, in a certain sense, you're already out of Eretz Israel. Now, then it's still a question, because he left Beersheba, that's where Yitzchak and Rivka lived, and we learned, but Yitzchak and Beersheba, he goes all the way to where he has the dream, and all the way there, up to that point, he's being accompanied by Israeli angels. According to what we've just said, you can argue that the Chutzla'aretz angels should have taken over as soon as he left Beersheba, because from that moment, he's on his way out of Eretz Israel. How can we answer that? We can answer that by saying, you can't be on your way out of Eretz Israel, or you can't have the status of on your out of, out of Eretz Israel when you're still on your way to Yerushalayim. If you're in Eretz Israel and you're on your way to Yerushalayim, you are ascending, literally and spiritually. And while you are ascending, while you're on your way to Yerushalayim, you can't be considered leaving Eretz Israel to the extent of needing the non-Israeli angels. So, Yaakov leaves Beersheba on his way to Yerushalayim, accompanied by Israeli angels. When he is ready to leave Yerushalayim, that's when he is clearly and unmistakably on his way out of Israel. And that's why the angels swap over at this particular moment. Okay, let's move on. As usual, I invite questions. It's a little bit harder in a Zoom format, but please feel free to put your hand up digitally or physically and unmute yourself and contribute. So we come to Pasuk Yud Gimel. And what happens in the dream? So we've got the dream of the ladder, we've got angels going up and down. And then we have, Behine Hashem Nitzav Alav. And behold, Hashem was standing either on it or on him. And he said, Ani Hashem Abraham Avicha. I am Hashem, the God of Abraham, your father, the Eloke Yitzchak, and the God of Yitzchak, the land which you are lying on, I will give it to you, and to your descendants. So Hashem appears uh, in the dream. Um, presumably on top of the ladder, or it could be on top of him. Uh, and he says, uh, I'm going to, uh, I am the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Yitzchak, and I'm going to give you the land which you're lying on. Okay, so the first thing Rashi says is on the word Nitzav Alav, Hashem was standing on it or on him. Says Rashi, Lashamro, to guard him. Why does Rashi say this? Well, the fact is, Vahinei Hashem Nitzav Alav is a very um, strange phrase, strange as it's uh, uncommon. Everywhere else, I say everywhere, I haven't checked, but uh, um, lots and lots of places where Hashem appears to somebody and gives them a message, it says Hashem appeared to him. Vayera Elav Hashem. Hashem appeared to him. And what's this Hashem standing by him, or on him, or on the ladder? 
what's the standing now it occurs to me as i'm saying this that it's a little bit different because it's a dream so in a dream you know funny things happen in a dream you see hashem standing rather than the factual narrative that says hashem appeared but nevertheless it is a strange phrase and rashi needs to explain it and he explains it as lashomro hashem was standing on it or on him to guard him now um so rashi's explained what nitzava love means but it can also explain or answer the question we asked earlier which i deliberately set up for this resolution which was if the angels have the uh, israeli angels have gone up but the non-israeli angels wait to come down then there will be a moment when he will be unprotected so hashem will protect him and you can therefore interpret that the particular moment that Hashem is protecting him is in the absence of the angels. However, you could also say something quite different. Um, nowhere in Rashi's comment on the previous verse did he say the angels were protecting him. He said the angels were accompanying him or escorting him. Now, it could mean that they accompanied him in order to protect him. That's a natural thing that escorts do. Or it could be that Rashi is precise in his language, as he usually is, and he doesn't say that the angels were protecting him because they weren't protecting him. They were just escorting him. So who was protecting him? Hashem. Nitzavalav l'shamro. Hashem was standing there to protect him. So you can read it in at least two ways and probably many others as well. The angels were guarding him, except during the moment when they were changing shift in which case Hashem was doing the guarding at that moment, or the angels weren't guarding him at all, and Hashem was guarding him the whole time. Now, then Hashem introduces himself as Elokei Avraham Avicha ve Elokei Yitzchak, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Yitzchak. And Rashi says there's something odd with Elokei Yitzchak, because Rashi says, we, even though we do not find in scripture that Hashem joins his name with Sadiqim in their lives, while they're still alive, to say, I am the God of so and so. Now, why? So, there's a few sort of clauses to this Rashi, but we can pause as we go along. So generally speaking, Hashem does not say, I am the God of someone who is still alive. And that's the question. Yitzchak is still alive at this point. Yitzchak is alive for a long time to come. And so Abraham is not alive, but Yitzchak is alive. So why, as well as saying uh, Hashem introducing himself as Elokei Abraham, that's fine because Abraham's not alive. Why does he say Elokei Yitzchak? which he normally doesn't do with somebody who's alive. Now, the next line of Rashi is to say, why does Hashem not normally join his name to somebody who's still alive? Mishum because it says, they in their holiness cannot trust, which means the sad fact that if somebody is a tzaddik while they're still alive, we don't know if they're going to remain at Sadiq. They always have free will. Now, you can argue Hashem knows, but Hashem lets us live according to Bechira Chavshit. It's a fundamental theory of uh, fundamental theorem 
of Jewish philosophy, very important at this time of year when we're trying to understand teshuva, uh, which means making a choice for the right way rather than the wrong way. So everyone has a choice. As long as they're alive, they have a choice. And therefore, there's always the possibility that they could go in the wrong direction. And Hashem is not going to unite his name with somebody who then might turn out to be not such a tzaddik because of their subsequent behavior. So now we understand why Hashem does not normally unite his name with a living tzaddik. Now we have to understand why he does in the case of Yitzchak. So, so continues Rashi. Kan yechad shemo shal Yitzchak. Here he does literally unite his name with Yitzchak. Lefi shakohu enav, because his eyes were dim, bakaluba bayit, and he was literally imprisoned in his house, baharehu kamate, and it's as if he is dead, the yetzahara pasak mimenu, and the yetzahara, the evil inclination, has departed from him. So in the case of Yitzchak, for reasons we're going to analyze in just a moment, the Yitzhahara problem was not a problem. Yitzchak's Yitzhahara had gone. And therefore, Hashem, it was no risk, as it were, for Hashem to connect his name to the name of Yitzchak. So this exception to the rule, why Hashem unites his name with a living person in the case of Yitzchak, is explained by Yitzchak himself as an exception. And interestingly enough, the Rashi gives two things that have happened to Yitzchak. Number one, Kohu Enav, his eyes are dim, he's blind. And number two, Kaluba Bayit, he is imprisoned in his house. Now, those two things might come together. He's, as it were, imprisoned because he's blind, so he can't go out and go for a walk. Or maybe they're separate, that some people are blind, but nevertheless, they find ways or somebody helps them to get out of the house, but apparently not in the case of Yitzchak. And it is significant that Rashi gives both these reasons. And the reason it's significant is because there are other people who are described as kermate, as if they are dead. Uh, the Gemara in Adarim says somebody who is poor, as in poverty-stricken, somebody who has got sarat, the disease mistranslated as leprosy, somebody who does not never have children. All these people are described as kermate, as if they are dead. But that does not mean that they've lost their Yetzirah. Perhaps a classic example um, is Datan Anavira. Um, in Perak Dalad, I think, of Shemot, I didn't look this up, so I'm guessing, Hashem says to Moshe, you can go back to Mitzrayim because all those who wanted to kill you are dead. And Rashi says there, I'm sorry, I don't have the passing in front of me, Hashem is referring to Datan Anavira because they wanted uh, Moshe dead. They, they uh, betrayed him to Paro at an earlier occasion. But they're clearly not dead because they appear in the story many more times. But Rashi says they have lost all their money, so they are commate. They are like dead. But they are a very good example of people who have not lost their Yetzirah because they turn out to be really bad. So just to be commate in a situation which is described as being like dead does not necessarily relieve you of the Yetzirah. And maybe that's why in Yitzhak's case, Rashi says there's not one but two factors. Number one, Kohu Enav, and number two, Kaluba Bayit, and then he's Kamate. And in that circumstance, blind and imprisoned in his house, he has lost his Yetzahara, and therefore Hashem can unite his name with him. Let so us move on. 
Yes, um, I just wanted to ask, I know, so Rashi doesn't comment on this, so I guess it's out of scope, but maybe we can connect it anyway. Um, so when it says Abraham Avicha, it doesn't have Avicha after Yitzchak, and I'm wondering if it's possible it's connected to this in any way. Um, to be honest, I was wondering that. Well, first of all, I was wondering why it says Abraham Avicha when Abraham is not his father. Right. That, that's, that's easy to handle. It's not an issue. Perhaps why nobody raised it, because a father and grandfather are pretty interchangeable. We see this in many examples. Um, but why it says Abraham Avicha and it doesn't say Yitzchak Avicha, um, I don't know. And I haven't got an answer. And uh, maybe you have. Um, two things to say is it, it, you're, I, I hear the uh, idea that perhaps we've got a whole special thing about why Hashem is God of Yitzchak. And we have this special thing that is not Yitzchak Avicha. Maybe there's a connection between those two things. Um, but I also note that Rashi doesn't comment on it. So that first of all gives me a, a free pass because I don't have to try and answer it or explain it. And secondly, I don't know. But have you got a theory of how they might actually be linked? I don't have a theory. I just thought there might be some connection. Yeah, as you said, that, that it stands out as being different. Yes. Okay. I so um, I, I can't resolve it. Uh, maybe somebody else uh, uh, here can. But I think we we'll just have to leave it as two interesting um, oddities. Um, about both of them, and maybe there's a connection between the two, but one that Rashi either doesn't doesn't feel that we need to know about. Okay, then the last part of the pasuk, Hashem says, "Ha'aretz asher ata shochev aleha lacha et nana ulazarecha." And Rashi says, "Shochev aleha, the land which you're lying on it, kipel hakadosh baruch hu kol eretz Yisrael tachtav." Hashem folded up all the land of Israel underneath him. Ramez lo, this alludes to him, it will be easy to, for his children to conquer. And then there's a bit which is in brackets, um, which I'm going which says, um, which is not in most texts of Rashi. Uh, it's a sort of a continuation of this from the Gemara. Um, so we don't really need to concentrate on that last few words, but let's concentrate on the previous ones. Why does Rashi say that Hashem folds up the earth beneath him? Um, and why does Rashi say this is a remez that it will be easy to conquer? So number stage one is to say, what? why does Hashem add the land that you're lying on? Why doesn't he just say the land of Israel? which is what he said to Abraham and to Yitzchak. So what's the significance of the land that he's lying on? If it means that he's going to literally get the land that he's lying on, the Arba Amot, the four cubits, that's uh, not such a good deal. It's not such a good promise. And it's also far less than was promised to his father and grandfather. So it can't be that. So it must be that he's promising the whole land. Then you say, if he's promising the whole land, why does he say the land on which you're lying? So Rashi solves that by saying he takes the whole land, folds it up, and puts it underneath Yaakov. So it is the whole land, and it is the land on which he's lying. Having said that, we're left with the question of why? Why, why go to such a length? Why doesn't he just say, I'm giving you the land? So it can't be that this folding up the land and putting it underneath him is showing um, Yaakov that he's giving him the land because he's already given him, first of all, he says, I will give it to you. Um, I suppose you could say that's referring to the Abba Amad, so we, we, that's a bit circular. But he certainly promised Abraham 
and Yitzchak, and he's repeating the promise that he gave to Abraham and Yitzchak regarding that it's the full land. So it cannot be that the folding up is to say, I'm giving you the full land, because that's already included in the promise. Therefore, it must be to teach something else. And that's why Rashi says it's an illusion that just as you can lie on top of one piece of land very easily, that his children will be able to conquer the land with the same degree of ease. It cannot be an expression of the promise to give him the land, because that's covered in the big promise given to Abraham and Yitzhak and then passed on to Yaakov. So it must be a promise of something else, namely, says Rashi, that it is going to be easy to conquer. And now we come to Pasuk Yudalad. Bahaya continues Hashem. So just by the way, the, the promise that was given to the other was always twofold. It was always about children and the land. And uh, one can uh, have a lot to say about the promise that there will be a Jewish nation and that that Jewish nation will get the Jewish land always go hand in hand. We are always, our identity as a Jewish nation in the Tanakh is always tied up indissolubly with the promise that we will have a land called Eretz Israel. So having said that you're going to have the land, then he says, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, which usually means you shall spread out. We'll see what Rashi says in a minute. To the west and to the east, to the north and to the south, and all the families of the world, of the, of the earth, will be blessed in you and in your descendants. So Rashi actually has um, very little to say. Um, on the word Ufaradsta, Rashi says it means the chazakta, and you shall take possession. Kamo v'chein Um, So they... Um, well, I'm sorry, I don't it can mean take possession as in Chazaka, or it can be you'll get strong as in Chazak. Uh, and I think um, it's not you should take possession. Sorry about that. I think it's you will get strong. Kamo v'chein yifrotz. Now, what is v'chein yifrotz? Obviously, it's the same root. Hey, reish, sadi. Where do we find that phrase v'chein yifrotz? We find it in Shemot Perak Aleph, Pasuk Yudbet, where the Egyptians enslaved the Jews and the more they did it, the more they got many, the more they yifrots. Now, we can read yifrots as in both cases here and in Shemot, as in they spread out. Um, so Yaakov could be told you will spread out in all four directions. The Jews, so as they got bigger, so they spread out. But Rashi wants to say no. That that's not the meaning here. The meaning is just like it doesn't mean that the Jews in Egypt necessarily spread out, but the Jews got stronger. And so similarly here, you will get strong in all directions. Uh, it's also the case that piratsa or parats is a funny word because it usually has negative connotations. A, a piratsa is a break in a wall. A porats is somebody who um, doesn't behave with normal boundaries of dignity. They behave in an undignified manner. Um, Piritsa is basically, is, it can be a breakthrough, but it's often a breaking. 
So there's usually, or a, I haven't added up how often it appears with a negative connotation, but I suggest it's a lot that, that it can have a negative connotation. Rashi wants to, to rescue the word and show that it has a positive connotation by Yaakov. So he finds in Shemot Perakal Apostle Yudbet, Kenyifrots, that was a blessing that was given to the Jewish people by Hashem. Even though the Egyptians were trying to reduce them and get rid of them, Hashem ensured that they would lifrots, they would get stronger, as Rashi explains here. And Rashi says it's the same meaning here, it's part of the bracha to Yaakov that he will be strong. So let's move on to Pasuk Tet Vav. Says God, Vihine Anochi Imach, behold, I am with you, Ushmarticha, and I will guard you, Bahal Asher Telech, wherever you go, Bahashivoticha, Elha Adama Hazot, and I will return you to this land, Kilo Ezvecha, sorry, Ezavcha, I will not leave you. Ad asher im asiti et asher dibarti lach. Well, with a bit of help from Rashi, um, it's going to mean until I have done what I have said, I'll leave the lach for Rashi to explain. But I, I was, I, I felt a need to translate the ad asher im because that's a bit cumbersome. Basically, until. Okay, what does Rashi say? Rashi says on the words anochi imach, I am with you. Because he was, he, Yaakov, was afraid of Esau and of Lavan. So Rashi says that Hashem has to say, because of a particular concern that Yaakov had, a fear of Esau and Lavan. Why does Rashi say this? So probably because we already know that Hashem is going to guard Yaakov. How do we know that? Because the very next word, Ushmarticha, I will guard you. So if Ushmarticha is a general guarding, Anochi Imach must be something else. It must be a response to another concern of Yaakov's. And that concern must be short term. Because clearly Hashem says, I'm going to guard you the whole way there and the whole way back. So if Yaakov is worried about something else, it's something that is imminent. What is imminent? Well, he's afraid of Esau, who might be chasing after him at this very moment to kill him. Um, and we'll see later in Rashi that by a proxy, that's what Esau was doing. And he's worried about Lavan. Lavan is the one whom he's going to. Now, he's going because his father sent him there. So it's not going to go to his death. It's going to be a different type of problem, but he's got something to worry about. So Rashi says, Anochi Imach must be because of some special worry that Yaakov has. What, uh, what, um, uh, what worry will he have? That he is worried about Esau and Lava. Now, it's worth noting that um, I said the, what he's fearing about Esau is obvious. He's fearing that Esau will kill him. What's he fearing about Lava? He's not fearing that Lavan will kill him. Now, he might be fearing that Lavan's going to trick him, and he's got good reasons for fearing that. But he's also fearing that he is going to raise his family, which, as we said last week, is critical to Yaakov's whole identity, to raise his family, and that they all stay on the derech, as we might say today, 
unlike Abraham's children, for whom Yishmael and the Bnei Keturah did not stay on the derech, unlike Eir Yitzchak's children, Esau veered off. Yaakov wants to raise all of his children to follow in his ways. And he's going to have to do that, unlike the challenge faced by his father and grandfather, outside of Eretz Yisrael, in the house of an idolater like Lavan. And so there is a beautiful parallelism between the fear of Esau and the fear of Lavan. The fear of Esau is physical, the fear of Lavan is spiritual. And it's the two together that comprise Yaakov's fears at that time. Now, let's move on to Ad Asher Im Asiti. So it says Rashi, Im Meshamesh Bilshan Ki. Im here, which we normally translate as if, serves an expression of key. Now, that, that doesn't help us all that much because as Rashi often reminds us, key has four meanings, but one of which is when. So if you read him as if, it would be, I will not leave you, until if I've done what I've said about you. Uh, and that can't make sense because Hashem's promise is not doubtful. We don't doubt Hashem's promise. Hashem could not be saying, I won't leave you until the situation which might come about if I've done what I promised. That cannot be for Hashem. So Rashi says, and he said the same thing in Perakhaftalad Pasuk Lamad Gimel, although he didn't say exactly the same words, which is interesting. Um, when Eliezer said, when Lavan of said to Eliezer, Nu, tell us our story, tell us your story. And Eliezer said, Lo ochal ad im dimbarati. I will not speak. Ad im dibarti. And Rashi says there also the im serves as key, meaning when. Rashi said also asher has the same property. Here he doesn't mention asher. That's the difference between the two, which I think is interesting, but I haven't found a particular reason why. Anyway, so im can serve as key, meaning when. Now, at this point, you might say, well, how can one word mean two very different things? Because if, the whole nature of if, is something may or may not happen. When means something will happen. They're two different things. So on one hand, you can say, well, im means im, but just occasionally it means key. But I think you can do better than that. And really what Rashi is saying is the word im means consequential. Um, if something happens, if or when something happens, then something else will happen. In this case, I will not leave you until something has happened. Namely, I will not leave you until something's happened. But that until can either be definite or it can be conditional. I will not leave you. It could be until if I've done what I've said I'm going to, and there's no guarantee that I will. Or it means I will not leave you until I've done what I've said, and I'm definitely going to do that. Either way, Im introduces the, um, the trigger for the other verb. So in this case, will then lead to um, I will lead you. I, I will leave you. Sorry, once I've done what I said, I will leave you. So the word Im, I'd like to say, that Rashi is saying, is really that linking word that links the effect with the cause in that order. And that cause can sometimes be definitely going to happen, in which case im means key, 
or sometimes it won't definitely happen, in which case im means the English if. And the word im has both those properties contained within it. Usually it means if, but sometimes it means key. Now we come to dibarti lach. Now I must say, as I was preparing this, I thought this is a perfect Rashi because he does all the work that, for, that I don't need to do because he explains the question and he explains the answer and he explains why the question's the question. It's all here, but let's see how he goes and maybe there'll still be a little bit for me to add. Dibarti lach. Until I have done everything, asher dibarti lach, which I have said, and the word lach is what Rashi is now going to explain. Rashi says, dibarti lach, letzarkacha va'alecha, for your need and about you. So, which I, the word asher dibarti lach does not mean that I have said to you, but rather it means what I have said, or literally, better still, I have spoken about you or for your need. So the word lacha, after the word dibur, does not mean to you. It means about you. Now Rashi will explain, when has Hashem spoken about Yaakov? Now, by the way, this is the first encounter between Hashem and Yaakov. So we need to find, uh, if, if Hashem is saying to Yaakov, I won't leave you until I've done what I've said about you, then we'll, we'll find, we have to find when did Hashem say something about Yaakov. That's also going to be hard because we haven't had a, an encounter, we don't read of an encounter between Hashem and Abraham or Hashem and Yitzhak where they talk about Yaakov. So Rashi is going to have to find a way to understand that Hashem has indeed been talking about Yaakov. So, Continues Rashi. Mashihivtahti la Avraham al Zaro. What I promised to Avraham about his descendants, lacha hivtahtiv. About you I promised it, below la Esav, and not to Esav. When is it? So when did Hashem speak to Avraham about Yaakov and Esav? Let's go on. Shalo amarati lo. When I spoke to Abraham about Yitzchak, I did not say that Yitzchak will be called your descendant, but I said in Yitzchak will be called your descendant, and not all of Yitzchak. So part of Yitzchak, Hashem says to Abraham, will be called your descendant, and not the other part of Yitzchak, i.e. Yitzchak will have at least two sons, one of which will be the fitting inheritor of your legacy, Abraham, and the other won't. But Yitzchak, in Yitzchak, or here, because it comes after the word key, the Yitzchak, in Yitzchak, and not all of Yitzchak. So when Hashem said to Abraham, in Yitzchak will be called your descendants, Hashem was talking about Yaakov. The in Yitzchak means the Yaakov part of Yitzchak. So that is where Hashem was talking about Yaakov. So now we know that when Hashem said to Yaakov, I won't leave you until seated at Kol Asher Dibarti Lach, which Rashi has said means I, everything that I've said about you. He was referring to the promise made to Abraham that Yaakov will be Abraham's true successor. Okay, now we have to explain this bit of grammar 
that Rashi's taught us, which seems a little bit strange, because we would naturally translate Dibarati Lach as I have spoken to you. That seems a pretty good translation. But Rashi's saying that's not the correct translation. Dibarati Lach means I've spoken about you. So it says Rashi here, V'chein kol li u'lacha v'lo v'lahem, all those pronouns to you, what look like to me, to you, to him, to them, hasamuchim eitzel dibur, which are put adjacent to the idea of dibur, of speaking, meshamshim loshon al. They all refer, they all are used in the sense of about, not to. V'zeh yochiach. And this is the proof. This very pasuk is the proof of that general rule. Shaharei im Yaakov lo diber kodem lachain, because he hadn't spoken to Yaakov until this moment. So when he says, he cannot be saying, I won't leave you until I've done everything that I've said to you, because he hasn't said anything to him. Now, you might think, well, he's speaking to him now, and he's promising to guard him and to bring him back, but it's not diber, it's dibarti. I have spoken in the past. So since it's Dibarti, I have spoken in the past, it can't be referring to the conversation he's having with Yitzhak at the moment. So it must be referring to something that he said earlier to someone else. So here, Dibarti Lach cannot mean I've spoken to you because he hasn't spoken to him. So it must be I've spoken about you. Um, so as I say, I, I did have to give, well, I chose to give some explanation, but basically Rashi explains very clearly the point that he's making, the question that he's raising, and the answer that he's giving. He says, lacha means about you. At the end of the Rashi, he says that's a general rule, and he proves that it must be the case from this very pasuk, because it can't mean I've spoken to you because he hasn't spoken yet. And then we have to find when did he speak about him? He spoke about him to Abraham when he said, ki ver yitzchak yikaret zera. Um, the Maral says that the reason for this odd grammatical rule is that if you like give something to someone, then the very fact that I'm handing it over means it goes to you. I take something in my hand, I put it in your hand, natati uh, lacha, I have given it to you. But a dibur is not something you transfer. A dibur is something that my words, not the Maharals, comes out of your mouth and it like hangs in the air. It's not passed over to a person. It's not like a thing that you can notain, you can give lacha to you. But rather you speak and the other person might hear it, but it doesn't mean that they're speaking to you. That's the nature of speaking. Speaking is not something that you give to someone. And that's why, says the Maharals, speaking doesn't take a direct or uh, indirect object um, of speak to you but rather it must mean speak about you. And we can go on a little bit further. And I think we can, yes, we can certainly fit in the next one, uh, which says, um, sorry, we're on the next Pasuk uh, Tet Zion. Yaakov Mishnato. Yaakov awoke from his sleep, Omer, and he said, yesh Hashem b'makom Behold, there is Hashem in this place, and I did not know. Says Rashi, Because if I did know, 
I would not have slept in this holy place. So what is, why does Rashi say that this is what Yaakov really means? Yaakov is regretting something. He's saying, oh, I didn't know. And what does it mean that he didn't know? Now, if it means I didn't know that Hashem was in this place, well, why would that be an expression of regret? Because he wouldn't be expected to know. It was not something that he could have known earlier. He wouldn't have known until he had the dream. So he can't wake up and say, oi, gewalt, I didn't know until I had the dream that this was the place where Hashem appears to people. Because there's nothing to be regretful about. It must be that he regrets not knowing because that would have led to a particular action or a different course of action. So he says, I regret not knowing because, and now Rashi adds the because, because I didn't act appropriately. Had I known, I would have acted differently. In other words, the point I'm trying to make that Rashi's making is it's not that he's expressing a regret about the lack of knowledge. He must be expressing a regret that the lack of knowledge caused him to do something which had he had the knowledge, he wouldn't have done. I didn't know that Hashem is in this place. And had I known, I would not have slept there. By the way, worth pointing out, just from this little idea, the tremendous humility of Yaakov. He doesn't suggest that, oh, Hashem brought me to this place. He made the sunset early so that he could give me the dream. And the dream, I've had this dream, amazing dream about Hashem on a ladder protecting me. Aren't I the lucky one? He says something which implies the complete opposite. He says, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have gone to sleep. But if he hadn't gone to sleep, he would never have the dream. The dream which was exactly prepared and designed for him. But as far as he's concerned, it was wrong for him to go to sleep. Now he realizes I should not have gone to sleep. And the idea that the dream was specially for him and Hashem deliberately brought about that he should be there in that place and go to sleep doesn't sort of uh, 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 doesn't register with him, at least the way Rashi explains it. Now, the next Rashi is super long, super long and super complicated. And I think that it is probably best at 926 to pause here. And next week, we will tackle the super long and super complicated Rashi. And so I will say thank you very much. I will invite any questions and comments. Rav, can I ask quickly, if I may, please, um, uh, why? Um, I guess that last Rashi assumes that Yaakov didn't know about the Al-Qaeda or that it took place there. Um, is that the assumption that he, he didn't necessarily go to Yerushalayim? Just on the way through, he, he like happened. That was the, just the way to get to Al-Qaeda. Okay, um, this isn't a way of avoiding your question, but can we leave it until the next long and complicated Rashi? Because it's exactly on that point. Well, thank okay. you. So remember your question, and we'll, uh, I hope we'll address it next week. Okay. All right. Thank you all. I'll see you next week, either in person or probably on Zoom. But either way, we will carry on learning Torah. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much.